Welcome to the Magician and the Fool podcast. This is episode number 12. My name is Dominic, and my co-host's name is Janice, and you will hear from him a little later in the show. Today we are talking about Shingon Buddhism with Reverend Kosho Finch of the Hoshinji Shingon Buddhist Temple in Portland, Oregon. A little bit about Reverend Finch. He took his first initiation in Shingon Buddhism in 1999, and then in 2000 he traveled to Japan for the Jukai, which is a receipt of precepts on Mount Koya. In 2006 he completed what's called Denpo Kanjo, which is final ordination on Mount Koya again. And in 2009, Reverend Finch completed the Ichiru Denju, which is complete transmission of the teachings. Since that time, he has led meditation groups in Portland, Oregon, and served as assistant minister with the Koyasan Shingon Mission of Hawaii. Reverend Finch earned his bachelor's degree from Michigan State University and his Juris Doctor from Willamette University College of Law. His goal and the purpose of the foundation of Shingon Buddhism is to maintain the lineage and traditional Shingon practice while finding new and innovative ways to share the teaching with those who are new to Buddhism as well as those who may have practiced their whole lives. We talked about a very diverse set of topics ranging from what is Shingon Buddhism and a little bit about the founder Kukai or Kobodaishi. We also talked about the importance of ritual as well as the specifics of how the Shingon altar is set up and the symbolic significance of the tools used as well as the mandalas and different images. We really appreciate his time and the wisdom that he shared with us and we're very confident you will enjoy it as well. Before we get to that interview I just want to remind everyone that we do have a Patreon page that we started and the sole purpose of that is to just fund the show. So The goal is to make the show self-sustainable. Thank you to those that reached out and have become patrons. It is greatly appreciated and very helpful for this whole endeavor. If you'd like to look into that and you are feeling generous, you can check out our website, themagicianandthefool.podbean.com. Okay, and now we will move on to the interview. We hope you enjoy it. Okay, we are here with today's interview. It's our great pleasure to have Reverend... Kosho Finch on the line, and he is with the Shingon Temple in Portland, Oregon. How are you, Sensei? I am good. Good morning. Good morning. And we are here with Janice as well, as always. Janice, how are you? Very well, thank you. All right. So let's kick it off. Um, let's start with some general introductions and, and go from there. So can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Um, 
So I'm one of the few American-born um, Shingon teachers, practitioners, I guess. Um, there's really not that many of us. Um, I'm from Detroit, Michigan, originally, uh, currently living in Portland, Oregon. And um, as you mentioned, we do have a, I would say, proto-temple um, in Oregon now. So this will be one of the newest Shingon centers in the United States. Um, the last new temple to be founded, I think, was 1956 or something like that in Hawaii. Wow. So it's been uh, quite a while. Um, so I first got interested in Shingon, um, actually in grade school. Um, the book um, Shingon Japanese Esoteric Buddhism by Yamasaki Sensei was the first book that I found. Um, so um, a belated much uh, great and uh, wonderful thanks to Wayne State University's library for actually having that book on their shelves when it was published in the late 80s. And that's where I first encountered it and um, just really got fascinated reading about this very um, unusual and different Buddhist monk, Kukai. So I had a long standing interest in Buddhism when I was uh, quite young, but I would often hear people criticize. Uh, Buddhism as you know a whole lot of navel gazing or a very um, detached uninvolved spiritual practice um, and so they weren't seeing maybe the actual practice of it or um, from a local of course midwestern Christian perspective weren't seeing um, people um, feeding the poor or doing practice they looked at it as something where people left the world and disappeared uh, so that that bias was there so when I encountered Chingon here, you, you find a monk, Kukai, who pioneers a very different model, a very engaged uh, model of practice, uh, doing things for people, um, you know, not just spiritual practice, but social welfare, um, education, providing um, medicine and, and, you know, just care to people in general. So that was um, both the interest in the actual spiritual teaching, but the, you know, this unique person became, I think, kind of a driving force in my, my search. But of course, we're talking um, Detroit in the late 80s. There was no Buddhist temples or centers. Um, so it took quite a while to actually find um, either more information or actual teacher. So this is uh, before the internet. And <laughs> um, so that that was quite of a quite a search actually. So it really wouldn't be maybe ten to twelve years later that I would actually encounter uh, Buddhism in practice and Shingon specifically. So um, there's a lot of ups and downs. I, I would say for you know anyone who's um, you know interested in Buddhism and they might not have a center or teacher locally, uh, stick with it. It is possible, but you know it might uh, you know it might require a little bit of a little bit of travel, um, like it did in my case, but I think that was fruitful. Um, so my first real practice opportunity came in college. I was a member of a Taiwanese Buddhist group. So they would actually invite a monk over from Taiwan periodically to do sitting meditation and talks. So I had to um, actually sit there and listen to them in Chinese and uh, try to understand what was being taught. So that was the the real opportunity. And then 
Um, Did you know Chinese at that point? I was learning Chinese at that time, but okay. it was nowhere, you know, second year Chinese in college is not sufficient to uh, sit through a philosophical lecture. Um, so I was getting maybe 10% of the talk, but the meditation and the practice was actually helpful. Um, and the other thing that, you know, probably greatly discounted um, was the fellowship. Um, you know, all you'd have a lot of students from Taiwan, um, Singapore, Malaysia coming together, uh, as well as professors. And uh, it was some really good food. So <laughs> uh, that was one of the uh, uh, really helpful things. You get to see, okay, people who've been practicing this their whole life, how do they actually carry themselves? What's the conversation? Um, one of the things that's really encouraged in Buddhism is the uh, Kalyanamitra in Sanskrit, which would be the good spiritual friends. So, um, you know, making good spiritual friends in the, in the process of your practice so that your practice is supported. So, you know, if you have a tough time or difficulty, you can actually call up a friend who's going to give you, um, you know, good advice. You say, I'm depressed. And they say, you know, let's meet for tea, not, you know, maybe let's go engage in debauchery or something like that. Um, so something that's going to help your, uh, spiritual practice and uphold, you know, what you're trying to do. Um, okay. So how, what do you think initially sparked your interest in Buddhism and why didn't you go like the, the Zen route? It might've been easier <laughs> to it, find cause Shingon in the eighties. Wow. You really, uh, I know it definitely was, um, probably reading. And then I was practicing martial arts uh, as a kid and um, probably anyone of that era had what I had, which was um, public access TV. They would very, um, they tend to show a lot of cheesy 60s and 70s Kung Fu movies. <laughs> right, right. And those always featured this, you know, wise master type person. And eventually I thought, oh, you know, there's something about that old wise guy. Um, that, well, that sounds like I'm talking about the mob. Uh, <laughs> that old, wizened uh, figure um, in, in the movie, and I thought, I wonder what it is that that person is doing. Um, and I think partially that led me into more reading um, about Buddhism and definitely was reading um, out of um, the realm of my understanding. So a lot of Buddhist teaching is assuming some life experience that, especially at that time, I didn't have. Um, so a lot of it made sense later, but, um, that got me interested, but I think what kept the interest was, um, it was a puzzle. I didn't understand it. And as I got older and I, I thought I became, um, you know, wiser, I was that, uh, wise cracking teenager who thought he had all the answers. Um, whenever I would go back to these texts, they would raise questions that I had never thought of. So that just became incredibly intriguing. And then um, you get to larger texts like the Avatamsaka Sutra or certain um, uh, Buddhist texts that begin to talk about um, molecular structure, you know, distant universes. And that was just really fascinating to um, see ancient writings that seemed in some ways to parallel modern scientific advancement. So um, it, it just... I never lost interest and um, I guess at some point it was just too late and I, uh, I kept going. So <laughs> Nice, nice. So how many Shingon temples are there in the United States? We could probably count them on one hand, right? Ye, well, no, you need 
uh, hands and toes. So oh, okay. on the mainland, uh, Los Angeles, Fresno, Sacramento, Portland, and Seattle. Uh, there used to be one in Vancouver, but that closed, I think, in the early 2000s. Um, and then in Hawaii is actually the, um, I guess, the stronghold of Shingon in the United States. So there's about um, 14 temples, and then 12 are, 11 or 12 are actively um, going. So there are a couple temples that, just because of history, populations have moved out of plantation areas, uh, former plantation areas. So the where there used to be a town, now there's just a stop sign. So the buildings are there. Um, there are still activities, but they tend to be a little bit more sporadic or people will go there for a particular um, celebration for nostalgia. Um, but the congregation itself is fairly small. But um, for example, on the big island of Hawaii, there's a temple, there's like five Shingon temples. Um, and you're talking about a, a you know, relatively small landmass size compared to obviously the mainland or even any particular state. I think Kauai, two, Honolulu, four, uh, Maui, three. Um, okay. There's additional other temples in various areas. So. Okay. So we, we you touched on Kukai there for a minute. Um, can we get into a little bit of of about Kukai and how Shingon was started. I mean, we can probably go for hours, but maybe the short version. <laughs> sure, I'll give the, uh, I said Cliff Notes version once recently. No one knew what I was talking about, so I have to, I guess Spark Notes version is the new, <laughs> um, the Wikipedia article version. Um, there you go. So Kukai was a um, Japanese um, monk, and before he became a monk, he was from a uh, family with connections. So he showed promise as a youth. He was sent to the capital to study. Um, so Japan at this time followed the Chinese model of education where um, university was sort of um, a, a private tutor system. So if you knew the right people, you'd be sent off to a private tutor and you would study for the civil service exams. And that's how you get a career in government. Um, so he was sent off and um, he even writes about this. He became sort of disillusioned with um, where his education was leading. So he dropped out. Um, but instead of starting a high-tech company in his garage, um, he decided to be, um, become ordained and um, he got very interested in, in Buddhism. So um, he spent a period in Japan as sort of an unofficial monk. Um, so this is kind of a historical artifact. When Buddhism spread out of India to China, Korea, Japan, the government had strict control over how many people could be ordained. So you had to be officially ordained on a specific ordination platform with government approval. So the temples would actually have to write, you know, can we ordain these number of people? And partially it was social control because you would be exempted from taxation and military service. Um, so you can understand for a government, you know, they want to keep kind of tight restrictions on the number of uh, bald-headed men with no families and, um, you know, that weren't stuck in a particular village wandering around the country. So um, Kukai took um, kind of this novice ordination um, and later he took this formal government-sanctioned ordination. Um, and in his travels, he was searching for more. He, at that time in Japan, there were 
what we might now call tantric or esoteric teachings. Um, so a lot of people don't, uh, when they think about tantric Buddhism, they think about Tibet and Nepal. Um, there's an earlier strain of these teachings that exist in Japan. So at that time, bits and pieces were flowing into Japan um, through the Silk Road and just trade routes. But there was no um, formal or coherent center for the study. And what Kukai wrote was, you know, they have the book, but people couldn't understand it or no one could explain it. So he thought um, the best way to learn was to actually travel to China and um, learn this teaching. And this was really um, what fascinated me about Kukai was, um, you know, you want to study something so badly, not only do you, you know, leave your family and give up um, opportunity to have a you know, really good career, but you, know, you make this arduous journey, which at that time was um, you know, nearly guaranteed to um, you know, potentially die at sea getting there. So he makes this journey successfully um, and actually studies in China at the main uh, Shingon temple that was uh, in place there in the ancient capital of uh, Chang'an, current day Xi'an, in uh, central China, and brings these teachings back to Japan and establishes uh, Koyasan, Mount Koya, in Wakayama Prefecture, which is about two hours outside of Osaka, the modern day Japan. Um, and that is the, you know, started in 806 um, and continues to operate to this day. Um, and that's the, the primary uh, training center and location for uh, Shingon Buddhism in, in Japan. There are other major temples, lineage uh, temples within Japan, um, primarily differences associated with uh, geography and history. It wasn't so easy to travel um, back and forth, so there are um, slight uh, variations, but probably 95% the same across all the different uh, schools of Shingon within Japan. Okay, well, that was a nice, concise, <laughs> quick, cause, yeah, I mean, there, there's books written about him, um, so that was nice. Um, what can Did he go through the Morningstar initiation prior to leaving for China? Uh, yeah, so he did it, undertook a practice called the Gumonjiho. So it is a meditation practice um, involving um, uh, one million mantra recitations. And um, he probably practiced it more than once, but during that um, time after he left university and before he went to China, he was practicing and studying quite heavily and undergoing this particular um meditation practice. And so it's, um, it's done within a relatively uh, short time frame, um, one month or so, but it, this is a, you know, 17, 16, 17 hours a day, um, constant mantra recitation meditation practice. So it's a very intensive practice. And that is, um, you know, for many of us, you know, we believe that's kind of where his breakthrough um, initial enlightenment experience came. And so when he goes to China, he's um, synthesizing the teaching in a kind of a formal, systematic way, not having his um, enlightenment experience at that time. So everyone agrees, if you, there's a historic record on both in China and Japan, and we're talking government record, 
of Kukai's visit as well as the temple's records. And uh, everyone who came in contact with him agrees that he was quite exceptional. Um, his writing, poetry, um, you know, literary ability, um, his insight into the teaching, his ability to learn quite quickly. Um, he actually learned Chinese while in Japan and then picked up Sanskrit within a few months of being in China. So um, initially I thought, well, how convenient. Um, <laughs> and then I was in graduate school and one of my professors actually talked about a student she had who had a photographic memory. Um, and the student had actually taken an exam she gave and then went to the library afterwards and wrote out the exam questions. And it was a long essay. And she said he was accurate to the comma. Like everything was perfect. It was literally a photograph in his mind or she would ask him about um, you know, a particular subject, he would say, what, what page of the book was that in? And he would remember from the actual pages. So I think um, either by virtue of Kukai's spiritual practice or starting off and being an incredibly exceptional person, um, had a, a tremendous ability um, to synthesize information and remember things that rivals, you know, what most of us have today. And, um, and that's how he was able to accomplish so much. So in many ways, it's not um, such a mystical story. You just have somebody who was incredibly focused on, um, you know, one, uh, one thing throughout their life. Right. Isn't that also the, the point of the Morningstar initiation is, is to increase memory, something like that? It is. Um, so one of the maybe um, reasons people do it um, sometimes is written as it gives one a tremendous memory capacity. Um, you could also think of it as um, maybe not just rote memorization, but um, you get insight into the teaching. So it's one thing to know um, kind of page by page a particular sutra or teaching. It's another thing to have deep insight into the meaning. And when you do have that insight um, at that point, um, I guess you have it. So you would, you would know the teaching um, and be able to explain it in a way that's very different from, um, you know, just memorizing a text or being conversant with a book. So um, it's, it really is that. And I think most people who do um, some type of spiritual practice for a long period of time end up feeling that way. They have a, a deeper insight into the teaching that um, is more useful than, you know, I, I memorize the book kind of a perspective. Okay, that makes sense. And speaking of insight, do you have any insight into, I don't want to get too off track, but maybe the group that he was a part of that was doing that ritual? Oh, so he had a uh, uh, initial teacher, uh, Master Gonzo in um, Japan, who provided him this teaching. So what he was finding, um, I think I should say disclaimer, these are, this is my perspective and my greatly simplified explanation. Um, there were bits and pieces of esoteric teachings, mantra, ritual practice, but no one had um, sort of a, if you think about it like university education, what should be the one-on-one courses and then the 400 level courses and then the graduate level courses. So there was bits and pieces of things. So people were doing these various practices. Um, and what Kukai recognized was this is a very good teaching, but we need to actually have a systematic transmission and the appropriate, because there's, there's things that we obviously don't know. So that was part of his impetus to go to um, China to learn that. Um, but there were texts and 
there are a lot of temples in Japan that predate Kukai's time that have esoteric imagery, um, but there's not necessarily a full teaching behind it. People said, you know, here's another Buddha statue or another way to um, display Kanon or some other Bodhisattva, and it has a, a different perspective, but they might not at that time have had, in addition, now here's the full ritual practice and the text that goes behind it, and then let's explain all of the symbolism and all the different ways you would use that symbolism in meditation. So you see this happening. So that was part of um, both Kukai's interest, and then later actually several of his students went to China to bring back more of those teachings. So they wanted a you know an actual systematic, um, you know, we were appropriately trained in this lineage. So. Okay. Janice, do you have anything before we move on? If not, that's fine. Okay. Um, so let's, let's move on to Shingon. So what, what makes Shingon different uh, than maybe other Buddhist schools that people are, people are more familiar with? Um, Shingon's actually, so this is my standard thing. Everybody's heard of Zen. Um, nobody has heard of Shingon. So um, Zen is the Japanese pronunciation of Dihyana in Sanskrit, which means meditation. And then Shingon is the Japanese pronunciation of mantra. So people have heard of mantras, but they don't associate the words. So mantra practice um, and the study and understanding of mantras is, a, is a, obviously a key focus of Shingon practice. Um, of course, other schools of Buddhism have mantras. We're not the only one. Actually, if you go to a more traditional Zen lineages, the morning services include mantra practice as well. Um, so the, the difference is, uh, I think, with Shingon, one is um, age of the school. Um, so right after Shingon is transmitted from China to Japan, about 80 years later, the Chinese go government go undergoes this great upheaval for nearly two years where a vast majority of the Buddhist temples in China are destroyed. Um, there's a massacre of monks and nuns. Um, the emperor at that time had gone to Taoism and there was political pressure to exterminate Buddhism as a foreign religion and in put Taoism as the, the primary feature. And that's strictly a political thing. It was a, a instigated within the government and got imperial approval and then eventually it ended. But that resulted in a lot of the teachings that had existed in China at that time were destroyed or scattered. Um, and so what you see today in a lot of modern Chinese schools is they'll have a little of this, a little of this, a little of that. And so there's, or it's a, a Zen lineage or something that came up primarily during the Ming dynasty. So a lot of those original lineages, including Shingon, no longer exist in China. But it was sort of saved by being transmitted to Japan. And then that same teaching that is Shingon separately came out of India three or 400 years later and went into to Tibet. It became Tibetan Buddhism. And, um, and it has its own character that's more Indian. And Tibet actually has sort of all the schools of Buddhism under one umbrella. It's a little bit different. So it's a, it's a transmission difference historically. Um, so here you have Shingon and also Tendai these two um, teachings that date back to the 800s. Um, and then all the other modern schools of Buddhism in Japan that people may be familiar with, like Jodo Shinshu, um, Nichiren Shu, even Zen were transmitted into Japan or developed in Japan much later. 
Um, so they're coming in in the 1100s, 1400s, or 1600s in Japan. Um, so Shingon itself focuses on um, what's sometimes called the Three Mysteries, which is a practice focus where you're uniting body, speech, and mind. So you're bringing um, body, meaning your physical posture, speech, either through mantra or some sort of recitation, and mind, mental focus, into um, unification in the meditation. So you're using all of those things at one time. Um, and that's a unique feature. So if you think about um, how we act in the world, how we create karma, what are our actions? We act through our body. We can hug people or we can you know, act out violently, right? We act through our speech. We can say kind things or we can say not so kind things. And we act through our mind, you know, our thoughts drive us. So these are our primary uh, ways that we interact with the world and the world interacts with us. So you're actually trying to take all three of those things and bring them together in meditation to affect change and kind of actualize this teaching within the, within the person. Um, so those are the, the unique features of Shingon that you might um, not find or you won't find as concentrated within Shingon that you see in other schools of Buddhism. But it's primarily a, a practice focus. Shingon itself is Buddhism. It's Mahayana Buddhist school. The um, underlying teachings are the same as all the other Mahayana Buddhist schools. The practice, but what you might say the icing on that cake is Shingon, that there's a slightly different practice focus in terms of what the meditation looks like. Can I uh, interject for a moment? Absolutely. So it always... In my rudimentary and basic understanding of Shingon, um, it, it, it struck me before I even learned later that the influence was present, the uh, body, speech, mind that you just described, mm -hmm. it struck me as uh, being resonant with the right thoughts, right, right words, right actions of Zoroastrianism. And then when I then I, later on, I ended up learning that, you know, some, there's some, some within Shingon that actually attribute a Zoroastrian influence to it. I would say absolutely. Um, in fact, um, if you actually go back to the etymology of a lot of the words like mantra, um, you can actually make an argument that there is Egyptian influence for terms like the cartouche which is a seal so mantra or mudras have the same concept or connotation um this is maybe like an archaeological perspective on shingon ideas um and then zoroastrian thought um ancient iranian thought you will find also in um rituals like the goma the fire ritual um so some of the practices definitely are cross-cultural um, and I would say the reason would be you, you're looking at a text or you're looking at a, a talk the Buddha gave. And again, this is my, um, my thinking or my way of explaining. You have monks sitting around saying, how do we actually go about practicing this? How do you put this into a practice or how do you, how do you make it work within the person? And so you see a ritual and you say, okay, what if we use that ritual form but we change the meaning of the components to match Buddhist ideas or concepts. And then we explain it this way and then we use it. So every religion uses candles, right? A lot of religions use incense. 
a lot of religions, um, you know, you will see some type of altar or building and they have a general common uh, structure. Um, and the reason for that is it, it works, right? That, that structure works, those um, items work, so you use them. But the symbolism for them may be explained differently between the different religions. So um, within Buddhism, there's going to be an explanation of um, you know, candles as light, as dispelling the darkness within your consciousness and leading you towards enlightenment. Somebody else may explain light as you know, the, the light of God and you know, bringing you closer to um, the Holy Spirit or something along those lines. But you might still use the same symbolism. But there definitely is uh, Zoroastrian influence within uh, Shingon as well as um, Buddhist practice in general. Um, a lot of people will trace um, the memorial services that are done and the concept of the spirit of the person, um, I guess, needing intercession when the 49 days after death. Um, some of that can be traced back to Zoroastrian thought. So um, some of the things that you will find are, I guess, kind of human spiritual um, artifacts, not something that Buddhism created on its own. The difference, I think, with Buddhism is the way it's explained and the way um, that intercession occurs is uniquely Buddhist. So, for example, the memorial services for the deceased in China, um, and I actually got a chance to see this a lot of times um, for memorial services or worshiping ancestors, there would be animal sacrifice. So of course there's absolutely no animal sacrifice within Buddhism. So those offerings were changed to vegetables and fruit. So if you go to um, a memorial service for someone, you may see you know large piles of vegetables and fruit. So people's interest and their tradition of making some offering is still there. But Buddhism says, well, in this practice perspective, let's change what those offerings are to something that's not um, gonna involve killing or the taking of life. So you'll still see these um, connections. Okay, that was, that was great. Right, right up our alley. <clears throat> um, so other than the body, speech, and mind being a little bit different, as, as it's practiced in Shingon. What about um, the heavy use of maybe like artwork and iconography and uh, ritual? Can we speak about that stuff as well? Absolutely. Um, so I would say, especially within Shingon, ritual is a, a tremendous component. Um, in fact, most of the meditation is, is a ritual meditation. Um, and sometimes I think that throws people off. So, um, if you look at Buddhism in the West, there tends to be less ritual. And I think that is because a lot of people who got interested in Buddhism early in 50s, 60s, 70s, were leaving or fleeing some traditional Christian or Jewish or you know, whatever their you know, Judeo-Christian background. And they wanted to find something new that didn't have those components. Um, and they sold Buddhism as not having those components when actually it does. It just didn't suit their needs at the time, so they conveniently ignored it. Um, but the reasons for it are, are greatly different. Um, so Shingon especially still has quite a bit of ritual, and you'll see that um, both on Koyasan as well as you know any local temple. And the reason is, and we 
everything in America in human culture is ritualized. Right? You get, if you get married, you have the opportunity to um, have a ritual or not. You can go to the courthouse and just sign the papers and you're married. Or uh, as most people do, they choose to gather friends and family. They have an officiant, they choose a special place and they make that experience more impactful, more meaningful. So one of the reasons for ritual is um, a recognition that that experience is affects a change in people more than not doing it. So if you go and just sign your name on the courthouse, yeah, you're married, but you don't have the memories. You don't have a lot of things. You don't have the shared experience that you might have. You might not talk about it in the same way with your friends and family as people saying, Oh, I remember at your wedding, this happened and I got to see this person and you have that human connection. So we're not, uh, automatons or machines we as human beings are multifaceted beings and so we need more than just a book but i think a lot of um buddhist practice in the west has become silent sitting meditation and book study a lot of things are um in human society and culture are ritualized um like weddings even graduation we mark any big um ceremony or transition with sort of a ceremony or ritual um, and I say that because I think sometimes people get scared off if they hear this concept of ritual. So there's, I think, different ways to think about it. Um, but really, it's an experiential um, perspective on learning. So um, any think about learning anything. Anything you learn, there's going to be a sit-down book portion in an academic sense, and then an application. Um, and then you might actually do a group activity or exercise in the learning of it. And really that's, you can think of it the same thing with Buddhist ritual. You might read about it, you might hear a talk, but the ritual service or ceremony is a way of everyone practicing together. So if you're learning how to recite the Heart Sutra, um, you're going to have a better time of learning how to recite the Heart Sutra doing it in a group. And that's at a service uh, at the temple. Uh, then you can do it at home and it's sort of um, part of you in a different way than if you're trying to just learn it through a book. But the ritual concept is, you know, it's a step-by-step -step, um, progression from your unenlightened state and then going through uh, stages, entering meditation, and then approaching the teaching from that perspective, and then recognizing that you're not yet enlightened, so you step out of that state and come back to your daily life. The idea is that when you're in that state, you're sort of simulating um, the enlightened experience or simulating um, approaching the teaching or learning the teaching from a different mental perspective that you don't have on a day-to-day. -day. Um, and again, that's something we do at weddings, right? You say, okay, I've got to go to this wedding. I'm going to bring a card or a gift. I'm going to put on different clothing. I'm going to comport myself differently. And so you behave differently in, in your interactions with people at that time are different. It's the same thing, spiritual practice. I'm going to enter the temple in a certain way. I'm going to, in Japanese tradition, take my shoes off. I'm going to, you know, walk in, I'm going to bow. Uh, I'm going to recognize that I want to affect these 
um, changes in my consciousness. And so these practices are beneficial to doing that. So that's really where the artwork um, and things like that would come into play. So a lot of people I think are turned off by, especially in the West, statuary and, and the artwork. Um, and they see, they make value judgments about um, sort of the outward manifestation. So I, I tell everybody, the statue does not want instant smoke and stacks of apples. They are symbolic of uh, some sort of practice that you want. You're not going there to please um, the statuary. That's not the focus. Everything at the temple is symbolic of something we're being taught, um, something that we're doing. But the practice of doing it um, is makes a change in us. I'll give you an example. The first when we first opened the center in Portland, um, this first service was New Year's Day, and um, our um, calligraphy teacher came and she had brought flowers from her garden, which of course is January 1st, so primarily um, evergreen leaves and things like that. So she brought a bundle of these things and she kneeled in Cezah and she started cutting them and arranging them in the vase and then she asked permission to offer it on the altar. Everybody stopped and watched her because the, the way she cut the stems, the way she arranged them was with so much care and um, kind of this dignified grace that they were all touched and they, everybody got very quiet watching and it was just a very beautiful scene. So when we create these opportunities, it um, actually changes us. So that's one of the reasons. Also the artwork is actually very explanatory. So the teaching is being, um, and you think the same way as a classroom textbook, you've got a wall of text and then you've got a diagram summarizing that teaching. Um, the artwork is a summary of the teaching. You can actually break down in Buddha's artwork all the different things that are being taught to you are symbolized. And so we learn in different ways. Some people learn by hearing, by reading, by doing. Um, you get all those learning opportunities within the temple. But definitely what you see now is these were the height of technological advancements in the fourth century. Uh, so we, we have those traditionally. I think if Buddhism were developed today, probably it would be like a, a 3D immersive video game experience where you go through and you know you you learn and you're challenged or you know maybe there's some more technological technology. But I will say that you know we now see the downfalls of that technology too, right? Everybody's stuck on their phones. Um, and getting back to traditional uh, human interaction forms, you know, actually physically getting together with people. Um, you, you can't in virtual reality smell incense. So, you know, you smell the incense, maybe it's cold in the temple, which it usually is. <laughs> Candlelight itself has a different quality than electric light. Um, so your, your physical experience is brought to the teaching as well. So Shingon is really this kind of um, 3D immersive technology for meditation, right? The space itself can affect a meditative change on you just by you walking in. May That's, I, mm -hmm. may I uh, interject for a moment? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, well, I think that I have a couple points I'd like to make here. I think that for one thing, the uh, iconoclastic 
tendency that we see in Americans is due to the unfortunate influence of Protestantism in this country, um, which eschews ritual and uh, and um, symbology generally. And yet, if you look historically at most human cultures, uh, religion and mysticism are often saturated with symbology and ritual. Um, and I think that it's a sort of poverty to uh, to to break away from that. <clears throat> now, with that said, uh, I also think that what you were saying about rituals uh, having uh, uh, importance as social markers and uh, rites of passage is very, very significant and important. And I think I'd like to add that, at least in my personal experience, uh, rituals can also trigger psychic processes when they're done correctly. If the, especially if the, um, if especially if the symbols and meanings are internalized to some degree or actualized within the psyche, uh, you know, and I think depth psychology recognizes this too. Ritual can actually cause transformative effects on the interior person as well. I mean, when you get, you know, the most uh, a wedding, for instance, I mean, yes, there's the external uh, manifestation of it being a group uh, ritual, which creates a social cohesion. But in addition to that, I think in the people who participate in it, it has a, it leaves a psychic imprint in the, in the mind, in the psyche, in the soul, which has corresponding effects and, and create, causes changes on the psyche in the psyches of the participants. So then when you bring that into the realm of the sacred and you have a ritual actuating um, spiritual, uh, you know, spiritual concepts, symbols, and uh, enlinkments with entities, uh, which, you know, transcend physicality, that can set into motion uh, re a reflex in the psyche which awakens corresponding principles within us. Do you think that's uh, accurate in your experience? I would wholeheartedly uh, agree. Um, as an American, part of learning, uh, Shingon is learning how to chant. And initially I thought, um, when am I going to use this? I thought I was learning meditation. Why am I learning how to uh, chant sutras? Is there any value to this? Um, and that was something I, I struggled with, uh, especially learning to do it in Japanese. Um, then um, I was doing it in Japan. It was a memorial service for um, the family's deceased mother and grandmother. And um, I'd say about halfway through the service, I looked over at the family and I noticed, you know, they were all had come in, you know, looking very somber. They all looked like they were in a very deep state of sort of meditative absorption, listening to everyone in the temple chant. And I realized at that moment, like, oh, actually, here's another way of offering the teaching, offering it through the voice and people absorbing it through this experience. And afterwards, there were tears, but you know, people, they felt lighter. They were different. Um, and here you had, you know, one of the biggest sort of transitions in life being death. And how do we, um, process that and bringing that into spiritual practice, bringing that to the temple and seeing people actually 
heal and change through that. Um, so the ritual, I think, can be very powerful in that way. And definitely in spiritual practice, I mean, we're talking about what seems impossible, enlightenment, um, transcending desire, transcending um, and kind of breaking the hold that our baser emotions have on us. And how is that possible? And that's really the central uh, practice in Qingong is giving people a practice that um, works. And um, so I've stuck with it. So I'm totally biased. I think it's good because I, I engage in it. Um, but, you know, I've, I've definitely seen changes in myself, changes in other people. And um, in, in that way, I think it can be very helpful. I usually do an experiment if I'm asked to come out and do a meditation class or something. I'll have people go through one of the um, Shingon meditations that uh, uses the voice, the Ah Sokokan, Ah vocalization meditation. And because there is a um, this experience of people using their voice, hearing the chanting of the person next to them, um, they almost always, I mean, 98% people say that was completely different from other opportunities they've had to meditate. And, um, you know, for a moment, they felt their mind was, you know, they weren't just going through the normal thought pattern. Their mind wasn't racing through a bunch of things. They actually felt their mind was focused. So um, that experience, I think, is a um, indication of how powerful ritual can be. But I would agree with you. There's definitely um, historical and cultural factors that discourage Western people from engaging in those in those practices, and um, which is kind of odd because we, I think, people still want to do it, but this sort of modern scientific mind tries to tell people there's no reason for it. But if you really look at culture and society, people are still engaging in ritual practice all the time. And you talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, I think uh, there was a, a gentleman, Richard Payne. Was that, what is that his name? He was talking about ritual and, yes. and the holidays mm-hmm. and the rituals that we go through. Um, so that was, that was interesting. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about, about that. <laughs> Yeah, I was just corresponding with Professor Payne on email uh, last night. So uh, Professor Payne is uh, the Distinguished Numata Professor of um, at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. Um, he, As part of his uh, PhD training, he uh, went to Khoisan and was ordained as a Shingon minister. So he's done a lot of writing about Tantric Buddhism and uh, the fire ritual, the Goma. Uh, so a lot of the modern... Um, academic literature, if you're going to try to find something to read on Chingon, um, you're going to find his writings. So um, it, was a, it was a pleasure meeting him and um, it's been nice to continue. But he's, I think, on the same page as me, is kind of in defense of, of ritual. And rather than from a purely academic perspective saying, okay, this ritual involves these steps, actually trying to get at what is the change the ritual is attempting to affect in the person and why the society does that ritual rather than, um, you know, just describing it kind of dispassionately, right? Actually getting engaged in it and recognizing that, um, you know, that change is, is really the point. Um, not, especially in Buddhism, we're not doing a ritual to please some external entity to get some benefit. That's not, 
you know, the only uh, perspective. We really are looking at step-by-step, how do you integrate a teaching into the person and effectuate change, right? How do you actually flip switches within the person um, to get to those goals that are explained in the Buddha Sutras? Part of the difficulty, I think, for a lot of Shingon temples is, um, unlike Zen, there haven't been a lot of Western students that have gone over to Japan and learned the teaching, partially because language barriers, partially the training is, is, can be long and difficult. Um, so there's not sort of a cohort of Americans practicing it and then passing it on. So most of the temples existing are still existing within the um, Japanese American cultural communities uh, on the West Coast in Hawaii. And not so much true for Hawaii, but definitely more so true for um, the mainland. Um, Because of the history of the internment, a lot of people were afraid to let outside communities in. Um, And a lot of Japanese went through a process of just trying to look very American. Um, and not wanting to draw attention to their spiritual traditions for fear of being locked up or being sent away. So that um, manifested in a lot of times, you know, temples inadvertently failing because, um, you know, literally there was no new blood coming in the door. The other uh, difficulty is you often have, you know, I, I hear this from a lot of people, even in Hawaii. They've attended the temple their whole life. They personally don't speak Japanese anymore because they're third, fourth, fifth generation. Or, you know, grandma was full-blood Japanese, Japanese-speaking, but now they're a quarter Japanese, half Chinese, a quarter Portuguese, you know, multicultural, um, you know, intermixing of people that's happened in the island. And so they go to the temple and, um, you know, the priest of that temple doesn't speak a word of English. So um, then they can't ask these kind of basic questions about um, Buddhism. When I, I was actually stationed at one of the temples in Hawaii, and I thought, oh, great, this will be a lot easier. Everyone here has grown up with Buddhism. They will understand what I'm talking about. And then everyone came up to me um, and said, oh, it's, sensei, it's good that you're here. We don't understand anything because we don't speak Japanese. <laughs> I was really shocked. But the politeness within the culture, um, no one would say, oh, thank you for the sermon. I don't speak anything. I don't understand a word of it. But then people would say, oh, I was really kind of scratching my head. Like, I don't think this would work on the mainland. Um, so we're still in a very, I would say, um, early phase of having, you know, fluent English speaking people, um, who are qualified to teach, uh, being available. And, and then technically Shingon falls into what we might call, uh, what a lot of scholars call immigrant Buddhism. So this is not your, um, wellness focused meditation or your mindfulness practice with no statuary or accoutrements and, you know, very, you know, just kind of group led, weekly meditation practice. This is an actual, um, you know, you go to a Shingon temple here, it looks like a Buddhist temple in Asia. Um, you go to a, a lot of Zen centers here, it doesn't look anything like a Zen temple in Asia. And I, I think people should ask themselves why that is. Why have we dropped all of the additional components? 
Um, so sometimes people are very confused when they come in because they say, well, this can't be Buddhism because Buddhism is nothing other than silent sitting meditation. <laughs> yep. So they, there's sometimes a confusion there. I think a lot of it originates also in that um, beat culture and then later hippie culture, that generation. Uh, you know, on one hand, a lot of them popularized Buddhism, but on the other hand, in the popularizing, they they really turned it into what they wanted it to be, and rather than allowed it to be what it naturally is. That, that's very true, and it, it actually, um, I would say you can even go back to turn of the century, um, initial British um, and European explorers coming into contact with Buddhism and reading into it what they wanted and then bringing back writings um, saying, well, this is what it is. And you'll still find a lot of uh, scholarly literature parroting these very old, outdated, and incorrect descriptions. For example, almost every textbook on Buddhism starts out with, Buddhists believe that all life is suffering. That couldn't be further from the truth. That's a completely incorrect characterization of uh, the Sanskrit uh, concept of dukkha. Um, but it is still every book starts off with this. And so that sounds really depressing. It sounds really, why would I want to read about this? Right. This sounds like a, just a, such, such a downer. Um, but that's not what the teaching says. It says in life, suffering is, you know, unavoidable, right? Not every day is going to be hundred percent. You will at some point catch a cold. You will at some point get older, you know, one day you're going to have a gray hair. Um, you know, eventually your pet goldfish might die. Um, what are you going to do? What emotions will come up when that happens and how will you approach it? So it's, um, it's very honest with its approach, but I think there was a time in, um, history where, you know, people wanted to kind of co-opt what Buddhism is and that has persisted to this day. And, um, Shingon was not one of those schools of Buddhism that was co-opted. So, of course, it's not in people's consciousness as um, a modern school of Buddhism that they're familiar with. Um, so we were talking a lot about ritual, and I think it's safe to say that ritual definitely elevates um, whatever you're doing from the mundane to a, a higher higher level, whether it's just uh, mundane things such as making the, you know, putting the Christmas tree up or if it's uh, a formal ceremony in like a religious context. Um, can you talk about the specific iconography and maybe the altar setup and what the symbolism means in like a, uh, a standard Shingon context? Sure. Um, so if you go to a Shingon temple, probably... Um, as compared to a lot of other uh, Buddhist traditions you might see in the United States, you'll definitely see more artwork. Um, and then you'll see this probably unusual or different looking altar and altar arrangement. Um, so what you'll normally see is um, the home zone or main image. So every temple will have as the primary image, a different Buddha, Bodhisattva, or what's very common in the United States is almost all the Shingon temples um, I think all but one 
all the Shingon temples, um, the main image is Kobodaishi. So there was a strong kind of um, faith tradition in the founder. So he, his image is the primary image in all the Hawaii temples. Um, I think Seattle, LA, and Sacramento are different. They both have one of the Buddhas or Bodhisattvas. So they're slightly different. Um, and then you'll see uh, two mandalas. So the Taizogai, Taizokai and Kongokai mandalas. And those will be the, um, you know, pretty much front and center. So these uh, two mandalas are, um, many, many books have been written on them. So I guess I'll give my kind of more simplistic example or explanation. Um, it's like taking a prism um, and passing it in front of sunlight. So initially you just see light. Once the prism is passed through, you see all the components in the light, all these multifaceted colors. So at the center of the mandala, you'll see Dainichi, this sort of anthropomorphic representation of enlightenment itself. And the mandala, in many ways, is this prismatic um, extrapolation of all the qualities that flow from enlightenment. But also, if you go to the outer edges and you're starting off as an unenlightened person trying to approach enlightenment, what are all the qualities that you need to integrate? Uh, but also, what are the things that you need to practice in order to achieve enlightenment? So you can find in the sutras a description of everything that's in the mandala, but the mandala is also um, kind of this practice diagram for this bodhisattva path that we're walking. And then looking at, um, as many of the sutras do, looking at the enlightened realm or what's, what is the enlightened mind like, you have another mandala that represents all the qualities of this enlightened mind. So um, they're used both for visualization. You visualize the, your progress through um, and, you know, even understanding the structure of the teaching. So you can actually look at the mandala and then look at the text and go back and forth. And over a period of time, you have a, an actual structure for um, the teaching. So and it's, it's worth pointing out, Buddha sutras weren't, are not set out like a textbook where you start at chapter one and when you get to chapter 26, you'll have this complete coherent step-by-step -step layout. The teachings were given in response to questions. So sometimes you need to read quite broadly before in your mind you start to put them together. So this is an example. And then the altar itself, um, if the images and mandalas are what you're visualizing, the altar has on it the things that you are integrating as part of the visualization. So you'll see flowers offered. Um, you'll see incense. So incense um, perfuming the space, purifying the space, symbolizing the purification, but also symbolizing sort of our energy and vigor. Right? If you light a stick of incense, it burns at a steady rate from top to bottom. So the idea that your spiritual practice should be the same way, that you should put energy in and the whole time you're investing the same amount of energy um, until you're extinguished, right? Until your life is over, you, you practice every day. Um, you have these, especially in Shingon, you'll see a lot of brass um, and they look like cups. So you have these brass cups with different offerings and each one symbolizing various uh, paramitas, the six paramitas, the six perfections. So, um, generosity, patience, wisdom, meditation, um, discipline, vigor. These things are being integrated into the practitioner 
as um, you go through the meditation. So you'll see the practitioner lift them up and then symbolically offer them to the Buddhas whose spiritual presence has been invited and then placed down and going to the next one. So you have this physical interaction with the teaching, with these concepts, right? You're not just thinking, okay, yeah, I have to remind myself of generosity, I have to remind myself of wisdom. So you actually use the body, you have your tactile feedback, and you say, oh, this is wisdom. I'm trying to integrate this concept, and you go to the next one. So that's a step-by-step um, process where you're interacting with these implements that are on the altar. And then that altar arrangement gets changed around depending on the, the different uh, rituals that you're, you're doing. So you'll see a kind of a relatively standard one and then something completely different for the Goma, the, the fire ritual, which becomes even more interactive when you um, have this very large, as I say, you know, we try to burn our temple down on a regular basis <laughs> where we have a, you know, actual use of fire in a ritual state, uh, which is done in Hinduism as well. Uh, the puja, the shingon version is a little bit um, different and can actually be quite uh, spectacular. A lot of the temples are playing taiko drums during that time and then chanting the mantra while the the service is going on. So it's it's very interactive and um, you know any kind of drumming, of course, where people feel it um, in a way that's different from using other instruments. And then if you look at maybe the <clears throat> Shugendo practitioners, those those fires are like, you know, 40 feet high sometimes, right? And they they uh, make some um, pretty big. They do. They actually do what's called the Saito Goma. And uh, Shingon has this as well. Um, I think we probably reabsorbed it from Shugendo. I'm not sure who, who had it first, but um, the Saito Goma is done outside. And that's actually um, in many of those rituals, um, here's again another experience thing. This is the the original fire walking. After the that large fire has burned down, the coals are raked out, and then people will actually walk across that sacred space. So you're sometimes there's a gate actually um, where they walk through. So they're either being purified by walking across the fire, or they'll have the perspective or the sim- symbolism that you're um, walking from the unenlightened state to the light enlightened state by going across. Um, so you actually have this experience and you'll see, you know, people of all ages, all social strata, um, you know, grandmas out there, uh, walking across the coals. Um, but again, it's a different way of interacting with the teaching. Um, and I think it, it bears in mind kind of reminding that, um, now in our lifetimes, we have this thing called, um, you know, widespread literacy and middle class and free time. Um, in the past, people didn't have that. So sometimes these rituals, they didn't have the ability to read. People didn't have the ability to practice in many ways. So the temple was putting together practice methods that, you know, you could come out of the field, you could come out of, you know, working at the docks or whatever and actually engage in and have some understanding of the teaching. Not to say that you know, really for that. But a lot of the questions that we have about Buddhism today, I think are as a result of um, having a very high level of literacy that, you know, now we can engage with the teaching in different ways and we're asking different questions. Well, uh, it also, I, I meant to say earlier, ritual also tends to bypass the conscious mind. 
You know, we have this rational analytical intellect that tends to quantify and, uh, you know, analyze and dissect things. And I know, I know in, in a Buddhist practice, that mind is definitely addressed and sort of tamed, I guess you could say, or put in its proper place. And I think that one of the things that <clears throat> embodied ritual enables us to do is it takes the concepts outside of a merely intellectual reductionism uh, and enables us to live them, to experience the, the principles of, of the practice in a way that, that, that transcends and bypasses this, this monkey mind that wants to put everything in boxes and, uh, you know, assume that it's, it's attained that some experience just by a, a intellectual retocination of it. And I, th I think that's extremely valuable, especially maybe for us Westerners, because we're so used to just thinking, 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 thinking about everything. It is. It can really get in the way of, um, I think, as Westerners, we often sometimes tell people you're overthinking a situation, but that's um, definitely the case in spiritual practice. A lot of times people can't put down this sort of uh, scientific mind of trying to quantify, categorize, you know, asking and stopping and wondering why and um, uh, to actually just experience and, and let their mind open. So that can actually be a huge barrier. And it, I could say, you know, as a, as a Westerner and someone who approached the teaching and practice in Japan, oftentimes I found that that was hard for me. Um, it was sometimes very difficult to suspend um, judgment and all this questioning in, in the mind saying, well, what about this? What about this? And even in saying, why are you doing this? Isn't this a waste of time? Um, and then just experiencing that and then benefiting from the, the insight of the practice. So... Um, ritual can has a way of shocking us out of that tendency. Um, you know, when you walk into a place that, you know, all of your senses are brought into it, right? Your the sense of smell through incense, you know, the sights are different. The, um, you know, the interior of the temple is quite different. And in fact, that was used to great effect, even in Kukai's time. Um, there's a hall on Koyas on the Torodo, the, the hall of lights, and um, it's just filled with lamps. And I have to you know, imagine, even now it's a spectacular sight, but in ancient times to have a hall of you know, 10,000 lanterns, um, probably people at nighttime before electric light had never seen so much light. So what, what does that do to people's um, minds and experience when they approach you know, a, a hall where the ritual is ongoing and the chanting is happening and you know, in the middle of all this darkness, there's this light emanating. Um, but it still has that effect on us. You know, we, everybody sits around a campfire and, um, there's something very primordial that comes out of it. So what's more so when you bring those same attributes into a very structured, uh, spiritual teaching and you're putting them to use for, um, you know, changing the mind, taming the monkey mind and, um, you know, bringing it to use that as a meditation. Yeah, what you guys have just been talking about, it's really been resonate, really resonates with me. Recently, I've been uh, thinking a lot about this. And it's certainly useful to know that, you know, there's three candles here because they represent the Trinity or, or whatever. But I think that um, symbolism 
and iconography and artwork does bypass the ego and it is talking to your unconscious directly um, in a way there's a there's a the communication and a language happening there that you may not be able to understand with the ego but there is a communication happening there and that's something i've been uh, kind of contemplating lately it is a lot of one of the biggest um hurdles in buddhist practice is um it is kind of this actualized psychology and oftentimes the sutras are asking us to look more deeply at the obstacles that we have to spiritual practice which sometimes are self-made obstacles um and one of the biggest um you know practices is sort of this repentance the recognizing um things that we've done that weren't helpful tendencies we have that aren't helpful and starting to try to overcome those. And that can be very difficult to recognize. And so um, approaching that through ritual practice, um, approaching that through prostrations, um, you know, literally bringing the head down to the floor, um, putting the ego down and recognizing we all have something to work on um, can be tremendously powerful. So, um, even more so, you know, we don't have this yet in the United States, but, um, you know, if you actually make a pilgrimage, you, you walk up the mountain path, you know, you climb the steps, you know, finally you're at this location and then you confront those questions about yourself. Um, it can be very transformative in a way that, you know, reading is not. But I, I want to, I think, I, I think for some listeners, a lot of people might not be familiar with what Shugendo is. It might be nice if we talk for like a minute or two on that, just so just so that people have a little more context for like what Shugendo in relationship to Shingo and vice versa. Sure. Um, Maybe we could segue a little bit into uh, like if we have time, like the Yamabushi and stuff like that. Well, I'll do my best. Uh, so Shugendo is a syncretic... Um, primarily lay practice, although there are ordinations within Shugendo, um, combination of Shinto, uh, Buddhism, and Taoism. So there, within that, um, there, a lot of the practice, the, the dojo in this sense, would be the mountain, the outdoors. So I guess you, you'd be combining um, these religions and mountain climbing together, um, and not in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way, but in an actual recognizing that the natural world is a, uh, and again, this is something that Kukai wrote a lot about, the natural world is um, resonating with the Buddhist teaching. You just have to recognize it. And in fact, it's a, a great place to go to understand um, the things that are being taught in Buddhism. So you, the mountain... Um, there's a lot of mountain symbolism within Buddhism, but in ancient Japan, the mountains were considered, you have to go back to kind of early Shinto writings as this sort of interstitial place between the spiritual world and the human realm. So they were often seen as um, places of transition. And the ancient Japanese would sometimes bury the dead in the mountains. So going into caves and, and leaving bodies. So mountains weren't someplace that people went for pleasure. It, it wasn't hiking. If you were a woodcutter or a hunter, you would go into the mountains. Otherwise you stayed out because it was, uh, you know, considered a very spiritual place. So Shugendo, um, took a lot of, um, symbolism 
from Shingon um, and Tendai, and then mixed it with a lot of the ideas in Shinto as well as um, Taoism, and then put the place of practice in the mountains. So you would actually go into the mountains to do these practices and see the person as um, emerging from the mountains as being changed. In much the same way that when we do the ritual practice, you're going in unenlightened, you're doing particular meditation ritual, you're visualizing yourself as the enlightened being during that portion of the meditation, and then um, recognizing that when you reemerge, you've changed. So um, Shugendo has this practice. So a lot of the, um, rather than temple-focused practice space, it was an outdoor-focused practice. Um, Most of it is a lay practice, so people can, there are initiations into it, but you're not, um, it's not a leaving home monk monastic practice. So people would be initiated, they would practice for a period of time and they go back to daily life and their career and then they go out and practice. So it was considered um, more accessible because again, there's limitation um, on, you know, ancient times, how many people could be ordained, but this was also, you know, a different practice perspective. Some of the Shugendo lineages today are formally associated with specific Shingon or Tendai temples. So you actually have to be, uh, some of them require training first as a Shingon priest, and then you get separately initiated into Shugendo. And then there are other Shugendo lineages where you just go in and you're initiated into that lineage and practice. So they're all a little bit different. Exhilarating. What's that? It sounds exhilarating. It can be. Um, there's a lot of, you'll find Shugendo type elements within Shingon. Um, a lot of the temples do the Saitogoma, the outdoor fire ritual, and you'll find these components because there is quite a bit of overlap. Um, I would say Shugendo is probably a lot simpler. And, and, and again, not I'm not trying to make a direct comparison, but you won't find a lot of textual study um, and the individual goal um, may or may not be enlightenment or um, the perfection of the Bodhisattva vow. There may be differences in those perspectives. So, um, I caveat, I'm, I'm not trying to rank one above the other when I say that. Just people's individual spiritual goals may be different for the practices. But there's a, a tremendous number of... Um, Shingon practitioners, um, heads of temples that also practice Shugendo and likewise. With the practice with the practice of Shugendo, is has that been an unbroken kind of chain of practice or has it been kind of uh did it burn out and is it resurrected or any answer? Uh, it depends that? on the lineage. Okay. So there are uh Shugendo lineages that are, for example, associated with Daigoji in uh Nara. Um, and then there's ones that are associated with Tendai temples in Kyoto and things like that. Um, I think most of them historically um, traced their lineage back to Inno Gyoja, who was a mystic who lived um, a few hundred years before Kobodaishi. So where you see this overlap is a lot of the places that were associated with Inno Gyoja um, later became Shingon temples. Um, or 
Kukai also went there and practiced in those same places because they were powerful places, base of a waterfall, you know, some places very beautiful and natural beauty. And um, again, both had access to a lot of the same texts. So this, I kind of, I guess, goes back to the earlier conversation that you had texts filtering in to Japan, but you didn't have a coherent lineage necessarily um, around them. So people were using and doing these practices, putting them together in ways that work for them. Um, and then later on, you see a more formal Shugendo lineage uh, begin. But um, I would say that they weren't always necessarily associated with one particular practice place. But that's not always true. Like the Mount Haguro um, Shugendo is is very well codified and you know has it has their own texts and things like that. But um, it is um, it does have more of a lay perspective or lay practice than um, the monastic practice that you'll see in Shingon and Tendai. You know, I think that people because of their lack of familiarity with Shingon, don't realize that Kobo Daishi is like the Guru Rinpoche of Japan. I mean, he's a huge deal and a very powerful spiritual figure in, in the history of Shingon, who, you know, and I think that, the, I think that it's a valid comparison because one thing I've always found amazing, uh, maybe we can segue into this, is how Shingon integrates with Shinto and how there's this practice of, I guess in the West there's a term, and I don't, it doesn't seem like it's a quite accurate, but the closest thing I guess we could call it is dual observance. Mm -hmm. where, you know, but I think that Westerners, again, have trouble understanding that because we don't really have a, an analogical thing that happens here. But it, I marvel at how in Japan, you know, you'll you'll have a person who practices Shingon and also venerates the kami, and 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 at least according to the one school, the kami are considered to be localized manifestations of the of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Could you talk a little on that relationship? Sure. Um, so yeah, actually, before the Meiji, um, most uh, many Shinto shrines were actually maintained by um, Qingon temples. Um, and then during the Meiji, they, those were split up. So you'll often find, I can think of one I went to, it's, it's a very stark reminder. You can see where the wall of the temple compound was, but the city road now runs through the middle. Um, so you cross the street and you're at the Shinto shrine. The other side of the street is the Shingon temple, but it, initially it was all one. So there was, a, again, um, earlier I talked about a, a period in Chinese history where um, Buddhism was viewed as this foreign religion and Taoism was favored. Same thing happened in Japan where, again, Buddhism was viewed as foreign and Shinto was favored as the, the nativist religion. So there was a suppression. So this has happened in, in most all countries. Um, but from a, a, especially Japanese Buddhist perspective, I think you'll find a Shinto shrine, well, at least all the Shingon temples, you will, um, and that will be true also for a lot of Zen temples. You go to the kitchen, there's a Shinto shrine. Um, but you're right, you don't have that same tradition. You wouldn't go to a Catholic church and find Native American 
deities, you know, coyote is not going to be enshrined um, in in the in a niche someplace. But there's not um, all Buddhist countries have this actually. If you go to Thailand, the original religion is still present in the Thai temple. If you go to Tibet, the Bon religion is still present in those temples. So we've never displaced. If you go to Chinese Buddhist temple, you'll find Taoist imagery um, and protectors. So the Buddhist perspective is not to displace or disprove the existing religion, um, its peaceful coexistence, because we're the goal in Buddhist practice is different than every other religion. So you can be a Buddhist hyphen something else. You can be a Buddhist Christian, a Buddhist Jew, a Buddhist Muslim from our perspective. The other sides may differ on an opinion, but um, if you go to Koyasan, for example, the original Shinto deities who um, are believed to inhabit the mountain are enshrined right in the main temple complex. So part of our uh, morning prayers include those, um, those local gods. And there's at least one temple on, in, in Hawaii um, where you know, you're on, at the temple in the morning service is calling out the local Hawaiian gods as well, recognizing that uh, they're here first and um, they have every right to exist. And we also um, both pray for their protection and also their, you know, their harmony. Um, so our perspective, I guess from a shingle perspective, is we have to ask their permission because it's their land. Um, so we're, we're breaking ground on their land. So we work in harmony together. Um, and that's, that's very common in every Buddhist lineage. But again, that's not something you'll see at the, you know, Buddhist meditation center perspective of mindfulness meditation. Um, but, and I, I, I joke sometimes with people, I say, oh, there's a Zen temple in Honolulu, but you'll notice that they do mantra practice and they have prayers and services and these things. And it's, it looks very different from the Zen center on the mainland. And why is that? <laughs> so, um, th that Shinto component is, is still present and it's not at all, um, a conflict. It's a basic teaching in Buddhism of non-duality. We see a conflict. Our minds stop and say, well, these, they, these two things have different labels. That's, one ism and this is a different ism how can you have both of these isms um in the same place and that's uh, our mind the buddhist teaching is very clear that the teaching is relevant to all beings in the six realms so hell ghosts humans animals uh, asuras and the heavens so there's no differentiation right everybody has access to this teaching and it's for all of them um so the temples don't, we don't discriminate based on spiritual label. How's that? Is he, it's an even more broader non-discrimination policy, right? Race, religion, age, sexual orientation, uh, spiritual level, um, you know, whether you have an earthly home or a heavenly home, we don't, there's no, there's no discrimination. <laughs> and you certainly do, maybe not in, in North America, but you certainly, as you know, Michael, or as you know, Janice, uh, the Afro-Caribbean uh, religion, South America, you certainly do have that combining of, of cultures with the oh, yeah, Catholics yeah. and the, the native. Yeah, there is stuff. that synthesis there. Um, but, you know, I, you know, 
And uh, another thing, now another thing I would like some clarification on, because I I felt a little, again, I'm not, I, I would love to practice Shigon, but there's nothing out where I live. But, you know, in my in my in my historical knowledge of it to me it just seemed like tendai is just started out as basically like the the corporate version like the the state sanctioned competition for shingon and i was always like man these guys are like you know they're almost you know they're almost like the knights versus the knights templar you know what i mean it's like you have the Shingon who did, you know, the real version, and then you have the Tendai. Now, I know Tendai has like been around a long time, so it's an established tradition. But to me, it just seems like an imitation of Shingon. I don't know if we want this on the record or what. <laughs> no, no, we can put okay. this on the record. <laughs> um, I, I will say that's a very interesting perspective. But um, maybe to clarify, Buddhism has always had to adapt to the political reality of, of the country. A great example, um, during Shakyamuni's time, there were no monasteries um, and monks got one robe. Um, monks get to China and the go Chinese government basically says, you can't just wander around, that's unseemly. Can you all stay in one place? So you have to develop a monastic tradition. So there's always been um, adaptations to the local environment. And the uh, at the time that Master Saicho comes back, so Saicho and Kukai are contemporaries, when Master Saicho comes back, the emperor already had in mind that um, Saicho was going to be this, the leader of all the Buddhist temples. This was actually a government-created um, government post. It'd be like saying, uh, who's the, the top Christian? You're in charge of all the Christian churches, and it's a government agency. So that, again, is the government just had to try to exert control. Um, and Saicho had this theory um, based on the Lotus Sutra, which is the, you know, the basis of the uh, Tendai or Tiantai teaching that the Buddhist teaching is available and um, open to everyone to practice, which is true. This is, what, this is the great teaching of the Lotus Sutra. Um, and in fact, in the Lotus Sutra, it says when Shakyamuni delivered this teaching, some of the monks couldn't, couldn't handle it. Um, and we're saying, wait, you know, beggars, rich, poor, people of all different backgrounds, it's open to everyone, and that was too radical for them. So they walked out. Um, so Saicho was, was pushing this idea and saying, this is what we want in Japan, um, a teaching that's open to everyone, not just a priestly class. So he comes back from China with this teaching and establishes it, but he encounters the esoteric teaching while he's in China. And he begins to study with Kukai also on his return. So he had this larger idea then that um, because the Lotus Sutra teaching is available to everyone, this is this teaching encompasses all Buddhist teaching. So he wanted everybody's teachings within Tantai, within Tendai. So because of that, um, I almost said corporate, no. Because of that initial imperial approval um, and support, um, Tendai has this sort of honored position, right? You know, it's actually Mount Ye right in Kyoto overlooking the imperial palace in many ways um, as being this is the protection. Kukai was very aware that um, entanglement with politics 
would eventually lead to problems and always had. In fact, he grew up watching the move of Nara from, you know, from Nara to Kyoto in, in part to break away from the power of his temples. The temples were getting too politically powerful. So he puts Koyasan out in the boonies. Um, it's still hard to get to, uh, which is why maybe some people haven't heard of it, but he succeeds in maintaining a monastic tradition that didn't get too messed up in, in, in politics. And so fast forward in Japanese history and you get Hideyoshi and Nobunaga and they're going around destroying all of the Buddhist temples and major Buddhist centers in Japan. Koyasan's the only one that doesn't get destroyed. Right. Hideyoshi marches his army out from Osaka, you know, is at the base of Koyasan, says we're going to burn it to the ground like we did Mount Hiei and everyone else. And there is a conversation that happens and Hideyoshi leaves as a follower of Shingon. So part of that was we are out here in the middle of nowhere for a reason. We don't want to be involved in politics. Right. So um, Shingon has a slightly different characteristic because of that. Uh, reticence, I guess, early on to be too enmeshed in um, the intrigue and drama of the court, which often led to temples getting burned down. Yeah, I actually was very, uh, I took a group to Japan in 2015 and I was very um, uh, fortunate. We had an introduction made by one of the Tendai temples in Hawaii. So we got a, a tour of Mount Hiei. Um, it's a beautiful, a temple complex, you know, there's a very wonderful practice happening there. I have a tremendous respect. I think really Tendai and Shingon are, um, you know, kind of long lost family members um, in, in terms of this initial uh, closeness of the two founders. So, um, no, it's, it's a very wonderful teaching. Again, it just, um, even Kukai had issues with the political entanglement where he was getting older he was ill and he had to ask the emperor over and over again, can I just go back to Khoisan to meditate? I want out of the politics, but you can't say no, or you can't, you still need the emperor's, you know, um, approval it is off with his head. If you don't kind of a perspective. So it's a, it's a different time from our, um, separation of church and state type of religious right. understanding. Cool. And, um, we are kind of going going long, so I would like to touch on kind of a stream of thought that we've been talking about in our previous few episodes, which was uh, astrology. And it's funny that they've slowly been inching their way towards Shingana. We spoke to Christopher Warnock, who is a prominent Western astrologer, and he's been initiated into Shingon. So we started kind of moving east in that episode, and we spoke to... Uh, a gentleman named Jeffrey Kotick last episode, which you're familiar with his work yep. um, as I found out, which is really cool. Um, and so he's obviously very interested in the astrology of Mikyo and uh, Chinese Buddhism. And I've, I found out that that's kind of an interest of yours as well. Can you speak about the astrology that's found in Mikyo and in Shingon, um, including the Hoshimitsuri? Sure. Um, and so here's a invitation to you and, and listeners, if they want, um, we'll be co-celebrating Hoshimatsuri, the Star Festival, at uh, Seattle Koyasan, February 3rd. So um, Imanaka-sensei will be doing the Hoshiku, the actual star ritual, and I'll be doing the Goma. So we do a, a dual um, ritual practice at that time. 
Um, so Kukai brought back um, a, lot, a lot of books beyond just Buddhist texts, but one of the um, big teachings that he brought back were these astrological texts. And so I guess it's helpful to put them in context for the time. Some of them, this was the astronomy of the day. This, these were not considered um, or looked at as astrology as sometimes looked down upon today as um, just fortune telling. This was considered a way, um, almost like a weather report for a person, right? So you're wondering why you have certain tendencies, why there are certain patterns in your life, and this was considered a way to get insight into that. So from a Buddhist perspective, um, some people debate, should there be any astrology within Buddhism? And some people say no. Um, the, I think the bigger answer is within Buddhist practice, we don't take refuge in astrology, meaning we're not going to astrology for every single answer or thinking that that's the end all be all. How it's used primarily is um, getting insight into what's happening in your life and what may be obstructing your spiritual practice or kind of directionality of things that are happening. And so you'll see that same perspective in Tibetan Buddhism that has um, kind of a strong astrological tradition. Um, it was used often in China for, um, and this is where astrology, Chinese astrology crosses over to what we might term as feng shui um, in a more modern time of understanding site selection for buildings, um, understanding where to put things and layout of things for maximum harmony. So a lot of um, Shingon buildings, site selection and location is based on these systems. When to do the opening services, um, garden layout. Um, actually, I know I have an article on um, Shingon esoteric garden design. So a lot of the Japanese garden design is actually based on a lot of these same principles. So you'll see it in the layout of Kyoto. You'll see it in the layout of Xi'an, Beijing. These cities themselves were laid out on these principles. Um, and the idea was that if there was a proper layout, there would be harmony for the people um, and government would be harmonious and things like that. So that it's a bigger study than just um, what's going to happen to me next month or am I going to be lucky in business or something like that. Um, the second aspect to that is then um, ritual practice to intercede on behalf of a person when there's some obstruction. And then Chinese astrology and a lot of what was imported into um, Japan also looks at uh, the health of the person. So there is an entire strata of astrology that has to do with your physical health. And in Chinese medicine, that health includes your mental health. So um, Buddhist texts are very clear that if you're physically ill, it's going to be hard to do meditation. Um, if you're in a state of depression or you're overly excited or something is um, off balance, you need to look at the whole person to understand maybe what your hurdles are. And when you have a good sense of that, then you can do the spiritual practice that's right for you. So a lot of it was used, um, I guess, in a purer sense to help the spiritual practitioner. Um, and then later people would come to the temple to actually uh, well, this still happens to um, 
ask for a service to overcome a particular obstacle that they're having. And part of that is not that you somehow do the ritual and then tomorrow everything's magically fixed, uh, but you're gaining insight into why there's an obstruction, right? What is it that um, is happening that's incorrect? Or you think about um, in terms of timing, because astrology really is um, understanding the movement of planetary bodies, including in their effect on you. And it's really just a big calendar. It's, it's, it's a clock. So understanding timing of when to do things. So um, for example, let's say you're a nurse and you have to give a patient an injection, the injection or you take medication, it says on the bottle, when do you take it? Take in the morning after meal, right? Because if you take it at night on an empty stomach, it's going to tear up your stomach and you won't be comfortable. So whatever the medicine is supposed to do, it may have the wrong effect. Um, so spiritual practice can be the same way. And um, certain spiritual practices are not good for all people. And they may not be good for certain times. And they may be better if they're done at different times. So um, this kind of date selection, um, time selection and suitability is part of that astrology. It's not um, this, I don't know, circus sideshow um, fortune telling. Um, Am I going to find the love of my life that, you know, at this party tomorrow or something? It's not that. Um, it's a much broader understanding. But also, if you look at um, the Avatamsaka Sutra, so the largest of all the Buddha Sutras, there's a tremendous component of that sutra that just talks about the structure of the universe. Um, and you, I used, when I was younger, I asked, like, well, why is this in here? What, what does the structure of the universe have to do with um, meditation or with enlightenment? Um, and partially it's what is the knowledge of a Buddha? So the Buddha didn't discuss everything he was enlightened to, but enlightenment itself was said to be a weeks long experience. Like the downloading of enlightenment took weeks. Um, so there's a lot more that a Buddha is privy to in terms of knowledge than just how to sit in meditation. Um, and it's also very clear in all the Buddha sutras that, Buddhism would agree with modern scientific discoveries and the Hubble Space Telescope that there are um, other world systems and other celestial bodies. And so some of that study brings in um, to the realm of Buddhist knowledge that information because lights go out, you look up in the sky and you, as any human being wonders, well, what's all that stuff for? <laughs> and what does it have to do with me? So whether it be the right time to plant crops so there's not a famine, so people are healthy and countries are in harmony, that's good. If you go back to the earliest Buddhist texts, one of the original conflicts that the Buddha interceded on was water wars. People were getting about to go to war with each other and his own clan over water rights. So if you understand, um, almost like a farmer's almanac, when to plant your crops and how to direct water and where water is, then you avoid conflict with people. Is that astrology? Sort of, right? Um, but it's what you put it to use for. So I think <coughs> this uh, label, um, sometimes when I, you know, there's, there's in Japanese, the sukuyo, um, 
this label is misunderstood in terms of usage. So if you say astrology, people often feel that doesn't have a part in Buddhist practice when it's a much bigger set of teachings. What it makes me think of is, so in the Corpus Hermeticum, mm -hmm. there's a also, which is like sort of that, the, that sutra for the Western mystery tradition, you could say. There's extensive cosmological uh, 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 discourse. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> embedded in that is the teaching that in order to understand the universe, you have to become the universe. Mm -hmm. you, you, by understanding the universe, you understand yourself. And that, to me, is mirrored very much in the Shingon idea of Dainichi uh, being the sort of cosmic human, you know, the, the human being in cosmic form. You know, you could even go into Kabbalah and talk about the Kabbalistic idea of Adam Kadmon, but the idea is that, you know, the I guess in Eastern terms, I'm probably butchering the idea, but the 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 star mandala and the earth mandala are mirrors of each other, and and in the same way, the human being is a reflection of the universe, and so by you know, there's that re reciprocal understanding that I feel like is really present in Shingon, and and uh, I think I I think that that's an essential part of the illumination experience is realizing your identity with everything, uh, you know, and, and the, the unitary nature of reality. Absolutely. I, you know, this concept of the, you know, ritual identification of the individual with all other sentient beings and then the universe as a whole, um, it's natural that you're going to bring into that idea or concept, um, the stars and the moon and, you know, all the natural forces and also just being aware. Um, some people discount this, but um, we live in the Pacific Northwest. People get seasonal affective disorder. There's not enough sunshine, so it affects their mood. Um, so you have to be aware of it. That's a really basic thing. But if you look at the English word lunatic coming from lunar moon and recognizing it on the full moon, people's moods are different. And I mean, ask any police officer or ambulance driver, um, and they'll say, this is a real thing. So what about all the other hours in the day and the month? What is the effect of the universe on the individual, especially for a cultivator, right? Especially for someone who's slowing down their body, slowing down their mind, really looking into the mind um, and recognizing, again, this is one of the reasons why, you know, the diet in the monastery is different, recognizing what the, the body's doing. Um, it becomes much more important. Um, sometimes we lose sight of all that when we're going from one steel box with rubber tires that take us really fast down the road to another steel box with jet engines that fly us around the world. And we think we're more advanced when I think, um, you know, ancient people had a much better grasp. There was a, a deeper insight into the influences on the individual. Um, and this is why I joke, be careful if you want to study Buddhism because you may find that the things you like to do now are not the things you like to do anymore because you don't find uh, television interesting or um, some of your hobbies may not be very interesting because you have this a different insight. So. so one thing I, I think, one last thing I was hoping we could touch on is the magical side of Shino. 
it seems like Shingon uh, is very much about things like exorcism, talismans. Uh, there's a like a magical practice aspect to it, which is engaged and practical. Because I think another thing that sets it apart from some other forms of Buddhism is, you know, it's, people criticize Buddhism. Oh, it's escapism. You're just trying to get out of the world, get out of it. But I feel like Shingon is very engaged with the world. And it not only engages the physical world, but the world of spiritual beings in the physical world. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit on that. Sure. Um, well, I would agree. It is a very, like, again, people ask me sometimes, why did you get interested? And I looked at all the things, the very practical benefit that Kukai brought to people. I mean, first public school in Japan, um, medical care for people. So there was a very practical sense, but there definitely was, um, um, sometimes, you know, people say, you know, there's a mysterious quality or a more mystical quality. Um, and I would say that that's true. Um, so sometimes I describe Kukai as, um, you know, almost a Jim, Jim, your type character, um, where he's seeing tremendous beauty and insight in the natural world. And um, having a deeper understanding of his place in the world through that. And, um, you know, sometimes we have to describe that as a, as a mystical experience. Um, it's something that transcends our um, daily logical language. Um, one thing I would caution is sometimes people are drawn to Shingon for um, interest in mysticism and kind of missing that it doesn't negate the basic Buddhist teaching that's still there. Um, the experiences are, are fine. They may be there, um, but it's still Buddhist practice. Um, so that's not necessarily the aim or goal, but we leave open um, the door for and are dedicating our practice to, again, all sentient beings. And in the traditional Buddhist sense, that includes uh, non-human um, beings. And if you want to only say, okay, I'm willing to extend that to my cat and dog, but that's as far as I want to go, that's fine. <laughs> um, there's no requirement that people um, believe in things that they can't see. But if people have experiences within, I think almost all Buddhist lineages, there are teachings about um, those other realms of knowledge and um, being. Again, every Buddhist lineage has these six realms of hells, animals, ghosts, heavens, human realm. If you want to think of them as actual physical places or psychological states, the teaching still works. Um, so it's not a reason to be turned off. Some people, I think, they say, well, that's not my experience right now. That's, that's okay. Because the, that teaching, whatever mystical realm you discuss, is just as relevant as a psychological state. Right? You can say, this is a DSM. You know, we're talking to a, a psychiatrist and we're going to talk about nuances and shades of the personality and the subconscious mind. Um, or even we now know that human trauma can be passed down genetically. Right? So we say, okay, your past life, if you just want to think about it as your genetics and trauma that comes through, the, your, your genes, you can say that. If you want to think about it in more broadly, because that's your experience, that's okay too. But the, the teaching itself doesn't fail for lack of 
or requiring um, someone to view the teaching a certain way. So I, I know for, again, our Western logical mind perspective is one thing. And so um, if I go to Hawaii or Japan or Southeast Asia, people have no problem. And they're like, yes, absolutely. You know, the, the God of the mountain, that's a thing. Um, you know, the street is known to be haunted. That's a thing. Um, if you talk about it sometimes here, people look at you very funny. Um, go to Hawaii and you talk, you mentioned night marchers. Everyone's like, yes, absolutely. The army of King Kamehameha, you still hear them at night. That's a, just a, no, no one questions. Um, so every culture is different, you know, even within the same country. So the Buddhist teaching is um, open and available to all perspectives, right? Not just one, but definitely within Shingon, there's more um, acceptance of, I would say, we have more practices and teachings than you might see at a, a typical American meditation center. Maybe that's a diplomatic way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I think that might be a good, a good place to end it. Um, if you guys are okay with that, um, it's been awesome conversation. I, I think we can probably go on for another few hours, but Oh yeah. Um, Anything? We're both honored that you decided to come on and speak with us. We want to express our gratitude to you for your valuable time and your your precious insights. And uh, again, just thank you so much. We're this is a rare opportunity, and I know I'm hoping that it will help people to see the beauty of Shingon, and maybe even have more people, um, you know, seek it out and try and learn more about it. Because I believe that Shingon is very relevant and very valid to today's world and could be of tremendous benefit to people in the West. Well, I think so too. I'm trying to make it uh, more available. Um, and I really appreciate both of you uh, talking with me today, giving me the opportunity to share some thoughts. And um, it's always people's questions that spur really good conversation. And um, as you'll see in a lot of the Buddhist teaching, it always starts with the student's question and the Buddha responds. And that's how the teaching comes out and is relevant to the needs of uh, people of the time. So I appreciate the opportunity to add more detail for uh, modern people. Yeah, and you, you are certainly doing your part to make Shingon accessible. Um, do you want to talk about maybe your website and how people can contact you? Sure. If they have any questions? Hopefully we'll, uh, I need to work on the website a little bit. So hopefully I'll have some, <laughs> some improvements by the time the podcast. Goes. It looks good. Um, but we do have a website. We have uh, a, a very small center um, in the Portland metro area. So um, with the resources we have, we're trying to make the, the teaching available. Um, I also do some seminars. We have a sister group in Hawaii. So we go over to Honolulu uh, periodically and do collaborations with some of the other temples. Um, but I do recognize there's a, there's a distinct lack of good information about Chingon in English. Um, so we're just trying to make that more available. And as part of that, um, I was convinced several years ago to put our uh, weekly Dharma talks on YouTube. So um, we have that as a resource for people. But I would say that, um, you know, if it's not our center, any of the temples I know would be happy to welcome people who want to visit. Um, there are sometimes um, language barriers, but, you know, we're in a really good situation right now on the mainland U S and most of the temples in Hawaii where, um, uh, the head 
priests of those temples are English speaking. Um, you know, call, email, drop in, check out the website for their schedules. Um, and, um, you know, invite a teacher if you can. Um, I'll be at university of Michigan, I think in February, um, for a while. So, uh, hopefully we'll get that schedule out of people can make it. I'm just trying to make the teaching more available in general. So, um, there can be more benefit and more people can learn about Shingo. And you also had a podcast of your own going for a little while, probably the first Shingon podcast in history. It might be. I think there's some in Japan. Oh, okay. um, maybe the first English one. Um, we do have a, a podcast. Um, it, it is um, in stasis at the moment. Says my, my co-host is incredibly busy um, completing his degree. Um, hopefully we can revive that effort. Um, but it, it, it's interesting actually how how much time it takes to run um, websites, Facebook groups, um, podcasts, and YouTube channels. So um, we hope to continue that in the future, uh, maybe reboot it with um, you know more roundtable talks and things like that. So um, that, that resource is out there and it's also linked on our, uh, our Facebook page, or I'm sorry, our YouTube. So the name of the podcast, True Words. True Words, and, which is a sorry. direct translation of Shingon. And the website? Uh, ShingonBuddhism.org. Okay, that's easy. And then the Facebook group, or the Facebook page is uh, Foundation for Shingon Buddhism, right? That's correct. So if you search Foundation for Shingon Buddhism on Facebook and on YouTube, you'll find the YouTube channel. Awesome. Thank you, Sensei, very much. Thank you. And there you have it, Sensei Kosho. Shingon Priest, we're deeply grateful for his appearance on the show. Um, we felt it was necessary to illuminate a lesser known form of Eastern esotericism in the West. And uh, we are personally very gratified by the conversation and the interaction. And I know I, for one, am very, I feel enriched by the, by the interaction. How about you, Dom? Absolutely. I feel super fortunate that we have access to Sensei Kosho. Um, he's really, I mean, super friendly. He'll, uh, you know, talk to you about whatever you'd like um, and basically very accessible. So, yeah, I learned a lot from him and I've learned a lot from all of our guests, actually. So it's it's been a great experience. And, yeah, talking about um, Shingon in particular, it's been really helpful for me personally um, as I look at actually uh, the neo Neoplatonic theurgy, um, it's it's really helping me flesh out a lot of ideas that are kind of left open-ended. Like when we talked to Professor Shaw about Iamblichus, nobody really knows how Iamblichus, um, how his rites were performed and what exactly took place. And Shingon for me is helping uh, helping me kind of flesh out how it may have looked um, as far as at least with the iconography and the symbolism and how that stuff is used in theurgy. Um, I'm finding that very interesting and helpful. Well, and I think even if the modality is somewhat different due to the Eastern flavor, I think the fact that we're looking at an unbroken tradition, you know, even though Shingon didn't start, say, 2,000 years ago, it, it did 
emerge uh, as a growth out of earlier esoteric tradition. And, and the issue in the West that we've discussed in other shows is the fact that in the Western world, uh, the esoteric tradition is either broken or has had to become at different points clandestine um, and go underground. So we've had to, in the past few generations, rebuild this tradition. And I think that's a lot, something a lot of people in the West forget sometimes is that we're dealing with the, we're sort of like blacksmiths who are reforging a sword that's been broken in war and was sitting buried underground for like a thousand years. You know, we're, we're taking the shards of this tradition and we're maybe the third or fourth wave into the reforging of the sword. And so yeah, we have Excalibur, and it, you know it's starting to look good, but it still needs to be sharpened. Uh, whereas in the East, they have you know the katana that's been you know lovingly cared for and actually worshipped as a Shinto deity in the temple. I think that it's really valuable for us to look at Eastern traditions and uh, whether we consider Gandhara, you know, uh, the Silk Road. Uh, you know, Haran and Mesopotamia, the Manichaean influence, all those different things that where there was a clear exchange between West and East, um, or we just look at them as parallel traditions. I think there's a lot to be gained from comparative study. And uh, I, I certainly know that when I read um, Kukai, the book on Kukai, I think it's just called Kukai, His Life and Works or something like that. Kukai, Major, major Works. Yeah, major works. Yeah, I was strict. I was stricken. Uh, you know, I, I was reading things he wrote, and I thought, "Wow, this could be something that a hermetic teacher had written two thousand years ago in the West." Or this is very similar to uh, things I've seen written by a Gnostic like Valentinus. You know, the the depth of understanding, but also the the particular perspective and esoteric orientation within at the same time a sort of, um, well, almost almost a hieratic attitude because Kobodaishi certainly was not a, uh, you know, renegade. He certainly was a sort of traditionalist at the same time that he was an esotericist. And the combination of genuine profound esotericism with uh, deep traditionalism is inspiring because it gives us a model, again, to look at, you know, what that would be like in the West. And, and, and the more we can establish consistency in our esotericism in the Western world, the more we can move away from the joke that some of it has become in the public eyes or the pop culture fad phenomenon that it seems to currently be. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, <clears throat> I also think it's interesting that, the East and the West aren't really as separate as they may be perceived on first look. So we, we talked about in our last show about how the Chinese esotericism and astrology was greatly influenced by uh, Persian sources, which were influenced by Greek and Egyptian sources. And of course that led into Japan. And so it seems like, they're really, you know, separated by this huge distance. Well, they are, but the ideas are kind of universal. I agree. One thing that, in particular, I I have been inspired inspired for since I first started 
looking into Shingon, and I know you do have it in the Tibetan Vajrayana as well, but uh, the, the, the use of the vowels, which anybody who's familiar with, you know, a Greco-Egyptian Alexandrian synthesis um, would be familiar with the use of the seven vowels and the magic and mysticism of that time. And so then we see in Shingon, for instance, a fully developed uh, methodology uh, where the vowels are integrated within a regular practice. And so that's just one example of many. Now, did, they, did the vowels emerge from the you know, Sanskrit usage? Perhaps. But perhaps, on the other hand, there may have been a Western influence too, or maybe there was an influence on the West at that time. I mean, we certainly know that in Alexandria there were Buddhist priests visiting and Hindu Brahmins, and I'm certain there was an interchange there. I mean, the entire city was a huge melting pot. Um, so, I mean, that's just one example of so many. And I feel particularly inspired by the, also the organic direction the last few episodes have gone. And I mean, we had a different planned trajectory, didn't we? Yeah, we were going to stick on the Western astrology and astral magic, but things just happened to, you know, fall out of place and different pieces fell into place. And we just kind of organically started moving eastward and, you know, Jeffrey Kotick kind of came into our sphere and just seemed like a good fit. And then that led perfectly into um, this episode with Kosho Sensei. It's really quite interesting because Christopher Warnock has the Shingon interest uh, as we do. And then we have Jeffrey Kotick who we had actually initially intended to have on for the astral magic aspect. And then he has the Shingon connection. And so bringing, uh, Kosho on was was just a natural development that seemed to fit perfectly in, and and uh, we're grateful for it. And we hope to look more at Shingon, esoteric Buddhism, maybe Anyoto, um, or Shigendo uh, in the future too. I mean, this is an area that you know, we both have a, a longstanding interest in. Many of the viewers or listeners, I guess. I mean, I guess if they're watching psychically, they're viewing. But I would like you know, please. Uh, you know, don't view me psychically. But uh, with Dominic, you know, a lot of people may not be aware of the fact that you studied a uh, Japanese martial art that uh, actually, uh, you know, integrates components of Japanese esoteric Buddhism. Yeah, yeah. And that's what got me interested in the Japanese esoteric Buddhism years and years ago. Yeah, it was an interesting introduction and, and series of events and i just i think you actually um supplied me with the shingon esoteric buddhism book by uh taiko yamasaki a few decades ago and so maybe we should talk about that we're thinking about maybe doing a, a book review segment in each episode so not not sure how that's going to work out but we're going to try and see see if it works so we might as well start with that book i don't know how much you remember about it I don't think you own it still. No, I think I might have even given you my copy, but I, I remember a good deal of it. I mean, it's a it's a tremendous book. It's a very interesting book uh, written by, isn't it written by Shingon Priest, I, be, I believe? Uh, yeah, he is. And it is um, probably one of the most comprehensive books in English ever written on this subject. He does, although he you know repeatedly admonishes readers not to attempt to uh, engage in the practice, which is the correct approach. 
he does go in depth. I mean, he explores the different practices of Shingon, the worldview and cosmology, the history of uh, Kobodaishi. Uh, he even goes into Tendai. So it's a valuable book. I remember being particularly uh, excited and interested by the Morning Star meditation in that book, the Akasha. Akasha Garba meditation, the meditation on the Bodhisattva or spiritual intelligence of the morning star Venus. I, I was really floored by that practice, which is ascetic, esoteric, Buddhist, and magical, all, you know, all at the same time. Yeah, and it's great. The book is interesting because he does, um, I mean, it, it's it's not scholarly, but he does cover, like you said, the history um, you know, pretty comprehensive history. So it's it's a good history. But then there's a lot of stuff that is functional that, that he does explain about the different types of visualizations, the different types of meditations that are commonly done. I know there, there are dozens and dozens of different visualizations and meditations, but he lays out a few. Um, and you could actually, if, if you, if you were so inclined, you could, you can, um, you know, attempt to do some of the meditations based on what he's written. And, you know, he talks about mudras as well as uh, invocation of, of the deities and things. So, yeah, it's it's a book that you can work with. I mean, you're not going to be an official practitioner of Shingon by any stretch of the imagination, but it get, definitely lays out a pretty good picture of of at least some of how it works. Yeah, and you know it is a little pricey. I believe I, I know it's out of print, but it's it, even if it's like a hundred dollars, it is worth it. Again, there are more books on Shingon these days available in English, but I know that this one is rock solid. It was put out by Shambhala, I believe. Now, I do want to I do want to also mention that if you're interested in Shingon, there's really only a couple places in America that you can go to a Shingon temple and experience it and that would be uh i know uh la has a temple i know portland has a temple of course um and there's also one in seattle um as far as we know that is basically it well hold you on, do hold, have on. To hold your horses on the mainland yeah there, there's a few in in california so i think maybe three um, if I'm not mistaken, and then yeah, Portland and Seattle. But then, like as Kosha was mentioning, there are at least a dozen in Hawaii. Right. Yes, in Hawaii as well. Um, and many of these temples also are um, in areas of the Japanese American diaspora. So, um, you know, really understand this uh, practice. It's good to get an understanding of the Japanese. I think worldview generally also and uh, Japanese cultural ways so that you're respectful to the, the parent culture of, of, of Shingon. If you encounter anyone who states that they're a Shingon priest, um, I would be, I, you know, unless they are attached to a temple and it's easily verifiable, I would make sure to check their credentials because we have heard of people impersonating, uh, you know, various types of uh priests and such in the past and and uh in our from our point of view that's a travesty so just be aware that um you know this is a small underground i wouldn't say underground but minority phenomenon and it is something that if you're interested in 
beyond reading about if you're interested in getting involved you should go to a place where there's a temple attached um, or of course if you have the means to do so you can go to japan Right. And something I, I'd like to just emphasize, and I think that uh, Kosho Sensei would also like to emphasize if he were here, is, and I, th- I think he did mention it in the interview, is that um, as unique and interesting as Shingon is, um, it's got its eccentric uh, qualities and, un- and you know, uniqueness. Um, at the end of the day, it is Buddhism. So you need to be. F- familiar with buddhism if you're if you're going to go down this path and and that's really that's really the the most important yes part. yeah beware of the allure of the exotic i mean if if you become interested in shingon or any other form of esoteric buddhism you should familiar yourself with the basics of buddhism and the 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 exoteric forms you could say uh, before venturing into the esoteric okay that's all i got um, unless you have any other brilliant things to say. Nope, that's good for me. So, Janice, where can people find us? Uh, we have a Facebook page. We have a website. We're on Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean. Uh, you can tune in psychically if you have the means. Just <laughs> attune yourself to it if you're that good. And I, I don't know if you said YouTube, so YouTube as well. Yeah, YouTube. Like and subscribe on YouTube. Like us on Facebook. Um, rate us and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all those places, because we have officially fallen off the the uh, charts in America. Um, but we are holding steady in Romania at number Big 30 Romania at number 34 in the charts under spirituality Romania shout out to all our fans in Romania and we are holding strong on the charts in Finland as well so Finland and Romania we're doing good that's it for this episode thank you for listening and we will see you next time <laughs>